This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his good friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. And their plan was to create a rehab that treated addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades of experience treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, as well as drug addiction and alcoholism. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. The uber potentially spiritual sweat lodge, the sound bath meditation, the equine therapy, the surfing. They make sure their detox is as comfortable as possible, which of course is critical when kicking heroin or benzos or whatever. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you through Dopey Patreon. You go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Uh, you guys contributing to Patreon helps me make the show, which is incredibly helpful. I love making the show. It's my favorite thing. I say that I want to quit my day job, but in reality, I'm killing myself working two jobs when I would just love to do Dopey. I put a ton of time into it. If you guys can kick down to Patreon, that would be awesome. We also have great gear at dopeypodcast.com. We're partnered up with a merch company out of Cincinnati, Ohio called SRO Prince. They are a couple of junkies like me and a lot of you, and they are in recovery, and they are making our merch. We have the new Dopey Nick shirt, which is like literally my favorite shirt. It's incredibly comfortable. 
colorful and celebrates the New York Knicks as they do better and win. We're winning 10 out of 11 right now. I've got crazy dopey hats, Oyve hats. They have hoodies. Venmo me if you want anything. I have stickers available if you're currently trying to do dopey sticker slaps. Let me know at Venmo. Check out the store again at dopeypodcast.com. I hope that's not too confusing. Enough with the ads. Here's the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave and I'm in the attic all by myself. All by myself, I want to be all... Yes, I'm all by myself in the attic, but I'm really excited. It is a... It is, as they said in the 90s, it is a banging show tonight. A banging show tonight. We have uh, Alice Malice McMunn, who was in the Black Tar Heroin documentary, and she is a uh, featured dancer at Cheetah's Nightclub in Los Angeles. She's an Instagram star and uh, a recovering drug addict. And my old friend Jeremy comes back on the show to talk about his experiences dating, as well as with drugs, addiction, dumb shit, and to celebrate what would have been our dear friend Todd's 47th birthday. I'm very excited. I think this show is a pretty fucking slamming show. That was something that we would do at Katz's, where... uh, All the guys, you know, most of whom were Dominican, would get a cheeseburger or chopped cheese from the front, and they would either say, yo, this shit is banging, or yo, this shit is slamming. So I would often say, would you say that chopped cheese sandwich you have is slamming or banging? And if you don't know what a chopped cheese sandwich is, it's like a hamburger that you chop up into the chopped meat so it's not in a patty, and you fry it up with onions and peppers, and you melt cheese on it, and you put it on a hero. Uh, They use a lot of mayonnaise and ketchup. I think it's delicious. Very, very unhealthy, but very delicious, and banging and slamming as well. Um, Funny story before we get into the show. I've been trying... I've been doing meditation. I've done meditation every day for months, and I had Nora with me the other morning, And she had gotten up really early and she was playing a softball game and she was anxious and I was trying to get her to meditate with me. So I go into the insight timer and I put on a three-minute breathing meditation and she loved it. She was like super relaxed. So I was like, I think I'm going to start trying to use uh, guided meditations once in a while. So the other morning I put on this guided meditation. um, I think it was for focus or work or something. And I put it on, and the dude did not sound enlightened. He sounded annoying. He sounded kind of like me, but annoying, more annoying. And the whole time he was licking his lips while he was doing the meditation narration. And he kept saying, look for an anchor. And then he'd be like, and I was like, ugh. So my whole meditation, looking for an anchor in my breathing, turned into me looking for an anchor in him licking his lips, which was just horrible. So as I've done many times before, I would like to full-heartedly apologize to all the music 
misophomiacs, or however you say that, all the sufferers of misophonia in the audience who's had to endure me licking my lips, eating, clearing my throat, all of the disgusting mouth noises you've heard. But at least this isn't a fucking meditation app, right? Anyway, I don't want to waste your time. We have a long and fun show, so get ready. Her name is Alice McMunn, and she goes by Malice McMunn. But before we get into the show, I just want to give credit to the amazing musical talent of my friend and former bandmate, Brian Brer Homa, or Hama, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, with his new song, Dopaleo. And, uh, and me and Sam were making the show when producer Sam commented on how much he loved Dopaleo. Sam, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. How are Hi, you? Dopey Nation. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah, I love Br'er Brian's stuff, but uh, I really love Dopaleo. It's two minutes and two seconds of just awesomeness that um, just really spoke to me, and I'm a man of a certain age, and I love the Gypsy Kings, and I love all the music that he picks and, and dopifies them up. Just love it. But what you said, though, was... People like Br'er Brian make Dopey real, is what you said, which I love that. I, I, did, I did say that. That's, that came out of my mouth. Uh, I, I, and I love you know, his stuff, and I love the stuff that everybody makes and everybody contributes on the show. Um, I love you know, uh, Misty's bootleg sticker factory. I love all the people that you know, organize and um, administer uh, Dopey Zoom. Uh, it just, it does. It, for me, it makes it really real. It makes it, this community seem so real. And what I, what I liken it to is when there's detractors from the show, such as, uh, you know, the infamous cat, Marnell, uh, who said that everything's fake. And, uh, you know, if we could only get, you know, people like her um, to listen to all of this content that these wonderful, beautiful members of the Dopey Nation have created, you know, I think she'd be singing a different tune. Maybe she'd be singing Dopaleo. Oh boy, I set you up for that, didn't I? Um, and also, how? what do you like more, Dopaleo or Dopey 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 Dopey? Dopey Dope Dopey 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 Which one? Dopey Dopey Dopey. What's your pick? I gotta go Dopaleo just because it's a slightly fresher track. Because it's newer. And what about, and no credit to Scott Wick, who has the intro on the new Dopey Patreon episode. Overlooking, overlooking Scott Wick's uh, rap prowess, I see. It, it was not intentional. And I love that he's choosing the beef and the rap, and the rap battle with Eastside Crackhead. Maybe, yeah, I, I, maybe there's a new beef brewing between Dopey producer Sam and Dopey street team leader Scott Wick. There's no beef there. There's all love, man. Stay tuned, Dopey Nation. Here we go. Alice Malice McMunn. How are you? Welcome to the show. Good. Good to see you, Dave. It's been forever. Did you, did you think right. it was ever going to happen? I knew it was going to happen. I just know I'm, I'm kind of like hard at making uh, concrete plans. That's hard for me. Yeah, she was like, well, we can do it, like, in a month at 11 o'clock at night, or we can do it today. And I was like, all right, let's just do it today. Fuck it. Um, and I heard about Alice through Tracy Helton, who's been on the show a bunch of times, from the documentary Black Tar Heroin on the Dark End of the Street, which is a cr- – and I, and I knew Tracy, and I never watched the movie, 
till today. And what a crazy movie. Do you watch the movie ever? I actually watch it often to maybe, you know, every other year or so. It actually helps me stay sober. Really? Explain that a little bit. Um, because, hey, you guys, don't fight. <laughs> because, hang on. No. I gotta take this treat away. Um, because, lay down. Because if I watch this documentary, it reminds me of the, sh- like, the shit that my life turns into when I start using. And how, also, so that documentary filmed us over a three-year-long period and it was in my early addiction it didn't show the end of my addiction it showed the beginning of my addiction so I looked like like when I look at myself back then like so ignorant like I just didn't know what the fuck was about to happen to me and like it's like how everyone walks into addiction thinking well I'm not going to be like those junkies like these people are fucked up I'm not going to be like those people but I know how the story ends. And so when I watch that documentary and just to look at me, like, talk, like say the stupid shit I said, and then, but knowing inside my mind what I was thinking too, and just being like, she doesn't even know. She right. doesn't even know. The, the, and just being like, I don't know now also how much worse it could get. But being a person who's been in recovery for 20 years, you watch people go in and out of the rooms and they tell you every time it was a thousand times worse. And I'm like, if it's worse than that, I don't want it. The the funniest thing is like in that movie, you by far have your shit together so much more than everybody else in the movie. You know what I mean? Like everyone else in the movie is like dying in the streets. You show up on your bike and you're like pedaling around San Francisco. um, And then you go back to to Seattle. Let's, let's take it back though. Like, I mean, this is my new question, which is, like, when did you realize you were an addict? So, sorry. Um, This new puppy still is getting trained right now, so we got to do some things sometimes. Um, The, in the beginning, in that documentary, it shows, like, in my first three years, my plan, you guys, my plan was... I'm never going to use for more than a week at a time. And what I'm going to do is I'll do heroin for a week and then I'll do speed for a week and then I'll do alcohol for a week and then I'll just smoke weed. And that's how I'm not going to get junkie like everyone else. Honestly. Oh, also I'm never going to pay for it because that's, that's what makes you a junkie. And that's what makes you an addict is if you're paying for it. So then my whole plan was like, kind of working for me for like four years honestly like that's like that first three years that they were filming me I was trading off drugs all the time it wasn't like I was using heroin every day it'd be like what a few days in a row I do it if days in a row I do something else and I was just trading all the time um but I remember because I can look at my journals that I still have and I can kind of see the day that it really happened because it was the day I started paying for when I started paying for it I also knew that I told myself, if you pay for it, that's when you know you're addicted. And so shortly after that, I became a drug dealer. So I wouldn't be a junkie in my mind. Prior to that, who was paying for it? Uh, People like, people love to give girls drugs there. You know, like everyone wants someone to get high with. 
and I was just there all the time sitting around just drinking on the stoops. I was a homeless girl, you know, so I'm sitting outside and people see me and they're like, hey, you want to get fucked up? And I'd be like, yeah. And I mean, I will admit like what gets tricky when you're a chick and you're just getting kickdowns all the time is, you know, that half the time they're giving you that in hopes that they might get also something else, you know, and like I was using my sexuality to get the free drugs, but um, I mean, I was using my company and like, you know, my, you know, young girlness and then, you know, it, it was exhausting to also know that um, I had to over and over reject people because I wasn't trying to do all that. You know, I was just like, I'm just trying to get high. I'm not trying to hook up with nobody. Right. But you were super cute and in the street. And like, I'm sure every guy that gave you drugs was like, what the fuck? You know, I'm sure it was like a, an understanding that they had that you were like, no, that's not that's not the understanding that I have. Yeah. I remember one time I was walking down the street and my wife stay away. Well, are you really going to do this? He keeps trying to eat bad things. Don't do this right now. Tell him you're, you're, um, on, you're on dopey. We don't have time for this dog shenanigans. What's going on? Anyway, um, so I, um, I was walking down the street one day and I didn't have any of the drugs that I wanted to do available. So I was like, you know, just like, whatever comes across my path, I'll do. And this guy was standing there and he was like, Hey, you want to smoke some crack? And I never really liked smoking crack, but I was like, why not? You know? And so I went with him and this is the thing I realized, you know, and now in retrospect, how many really dangerous situations I was putting myself in. I just went with some strange man underneath a, like where a building used to stand. It was like ruins of a building. And I went down there and I smoked crack with this guy, like $100 worth of crack. And he was like, afterwards, he was like, you know, like trying to touch me and shit. And I was like, oh, what are you doing? And he was like, uh, I'm trying to, you know, touch you and this and this. And I was like, no, dude. And he was like, I just gave you $100 worth of crack. I was like, sorry, bro. <laughs> and then I took off. And I was just like, wow, that's like, I mean, I think of myself in the past, too. I was like, wow, I was like fearless and ballsy, but I will also admit I was, like, a bit suicidal, so I also just didn't really fear, you know? I would do shit all the time and just, like, oh, what are you going to do, murder me? Right, know? right. Like, there was not a, a, something they could do that you didn't, you couldn't live with, right? Because you were fucking... No, I was like... Let me ask you, you this, know. though. You, you, you went to San Francisco basically to pursue homeless, drugness, punk rockness. Like, ha- what made you do it? Um, I mean, I was kicked out of foster care at 17 and I was already at that point, like, um, selling acid and shrooms and weed and, um, you know, hitchhiking everywhere. I hitchhiked, I lived, uh, the foster home I was in was, uh, Everett, Washington, that's North of Seattle. And, um, like Seattle in the nineties, as everyone knows, was like heroin esque. Everyone was on heroin. All the rock stars are on heroin. And I I wanted to try all the drugs. That was my plan as a young person. I was like, I'm just curious about the things and I want to try them all. My friends in Seattle at the time were like, I'm not giving heroin to a child, you know, because I was 17. But also I always looked a lot younger than I was when I was 17. I probably looked 14. Right. And so people are like, not giving you drugs, dumbass. And I was just like, okay, fine. I'll fucking get my drugs, you know? And like, I felt at 17 grown, you know, like I had already been through a lot in my life at 17 and, you know, I was kicked out of foster care. I'm out there doing my thing. 
And so I was already like on the streets off on and off Seattle and Everett and whatever. And I'm already breaking into squats and sleeping in houses. And anyway, so I hitchhiked down to Portland, no one there would give me the drugs I wanted. And so I met these girls in Portland and then we all hitchhiked to Salem, Oregon. It was just a bunch of punks and we were just running around and going to shows. And then one of the girls wanted to do heroin as much as I did. And she also wanted to skateboard and we both skateboarded. And so we were like, San Francisco has all the dope ass skate spots and it's got good heroin. So let's go there. And we just hitchhiked there. And the day we got there, we full shot up. And where, and where did you sleep? You were okay with just sleeping nowhere or whatever. It wouldn't matter to, to us. Like um, waking up somewhere we didn't know where we were was our favorite thing. We didn't care. Um, I mean, when we showed up that night, she had an old friend from, uh, she's from Roseburg, Oregon. One of her Roseburg, Oregon friends, this guy Dave, another Dave. <laughs> he was he was there and um, he knew a heroin dealer and he knew um, a, a squat that we could all sleep in. So we slept in an abandoned building. I think that building still stands in San Francisco. It was on 6th and Howard Street. And it was like a giant, like, it, it's like a Santee Alley type area. Like just like a, it had like a bunch of stores in the bottom floor. And then the upstairs was like apartments, but it'd been condemned for years. And we squatted that for like 10 years. <laughs> I mean, on and off different punks did. Why did you get kicked out of foster? Um, that's like different reasons every time. I mean, I was kicked out of multiple foster homes. The last one was cause honestly, um, I had already been done dirty by so many different foster homes, like foster parents that were just getting the money and treating me like horrible, horrible. like the abuse was bad, you know? So, I mean, I would rather be abused by my own family than people in foster care, but the last parents were actually nice people and I didn't get it. You know, I had already been tainted by the places I was at before, so I didn't believe... If someone cared about me back then, I didn't believe it. Right. You figured it was some, like, scam, like, because you had been kicked around so much already. Yeah. I thought they were just trying to control me, and they just wanted to, like, get money, and we got in a fight because I hitchhiked 300 miles to visit my sister, and they were worried. And I was like, oh, just trying to control me, you know, like, blah, blah, blah. And they're just like, no, like, you could get murdered, and I'm just like, no, I can't anyways. And we got in a fight and they, they, they crossed the line with me when they started like, um, talking shit about, they, they were calling the music I listened to satanic. And I was like, you know, I listened to ministry and like a lot of industrial goth music back then and everything. And, you know, the nineties and, uh, I, I went off on their religion and I got offensive. You know, I was saying shit like the Virgin Mary didn't know who her father was. That's why she said it was God. She was a whore. You Perfect. Know, shit like that. Yes. And so you basically became like the, the poster child for a satanic cult, death metal, hardcore, whatever. And then you hit the road and the first day you're in San Francisco, you shoot dope anyway. How, how was it for you the first time? Oh, it was, it was great. I mean, it was like, you know, it's like that whole thing everyone says is just for the type of person I was, for the type of drug that I was looking for, I wasn't looking for it. Like every time I drank alcohol, I hated it. I Alcohol just didn't click with me because first of all, it took so long. I was always a real instant gratification person. And then also I had like that kind of a racing mind. I was always an ADHD, like 
spaz kid and like I couldn't ever silence my brain and be calm and it just gave me calm me too and I never knew I never knew how to obtain that on my own and I just was like oh yes we have discovered the the gold and I was like okay I can't do that very often because I like it too much and I was like that's I need to leave that shit alone but of course my best friend became uh well my best friend was a heroin dealer he's this Mexican guy named Papa Antonio, and I love him. I will always, I love him. He was a good person. Like, he was, like, he just liked to chill, and he, like, um, he was a painter, really, in San Francisco, but he he was friends with all the Mexican mafia guys, and they would give him heroin to sell to us, all the street punks, but he would just give it to me because he was my friend, and I would always be like, Antonio, you don't have to give me this. I'm your friend, and he'd be like, oh, but... And he called me Alicia, but Alicia, I love you. And we hang out and I can give you, I, it's okay. And I would just be like, okay, you know, and I would just take drugs from him all the time. And so it was never, he was one of the people also that gave me free drugs all the time. I never really had to pay for it. He wanted to look out for you, but that's like when it gets crazy. Cause the second it's not there, like what happens? Yeah. And I mean, for, for years it was fine. And, and, and nothing, he ended up, I think, I moved a bunch of times. He moved one of the times and we lost connection in San Francisco. Um, I did end up seeing him years later after I got sober. And honestly, that's probably the first time and one of the only times in all my years of sobriety that I was sad I was sober. Right. Because I wanted to hang out with him. and But I knew that there's no way I could hang out with him like I did before. You know, and I, I saw him in Portland. Just cross, I was crossing a bridge and I saw him I was like... <gasps> Papa Antonio and he was like Alicia and he was like come let's hang out and I was like I I'm different now I can't you know and he was just like oh no and I was like I know that's so funny did he notice though could he see the difference I mean like the guys that I would get drugs from never gave me drugs and they were certainly not Papa Antonio they were more like Mr. Flacco or you know, Senor Indio, who like he loved me because I gave him so much money. But when I right. when I ran into him after the fact, he was like he thought I was gonna die. And when he saw me sober, he was like, "I'll fucking fuck you up if I see you use again." Did Papa Antonio like like uh, did he notice that you were clean, or was he like, "No, he didn't notice." No, he was all fucked think... up. No, because he no, he wasn't fucked up. I think it's just. I only had like a, maybe a year sober then, and I think it's pretty hard to tell. Because um, also when he left off with me, I still wasn't that bad off yet. Not very many people out there saw me in my last three years. And that's like just a few people in Texas. Because I also, I was holed up in Texas. I lived in Austin, Texas. I was a private show dancer back then hold up hold up hold up hold up how did you go from the street punk in san francisco to the private show dancer in texas Uh, first of all because you're not dancing around in that movie at all you're going into these weird public bathrooms and hitting girls in the neck and shit uh so like when did you figure out that you were going to be a dancer and how did you get in the movie in the first place this okay you're asking such good questions that no one ever asked okay um so in the documentary, uh, or before the documentary, so those guys that made the documentary, it's a guy named Steven Okazaki, and I think his uh, photographer was Jason. Um, can't really remember, but 
they were always hanging out at the needle exchange and they asked me over and over again. They're like, Hey, can we put you in this documentary? I was like, hell no, hell no, no, that's dumb. No, but this is so fucked up. I saw the people that they were filming and I'm not fucking kidding you. I thought to myself, me being a baby junkie, not even a a real experienced junkie. I thought that they were going to get the people that he was filming. were going to, I didn't know Tracy at the time. I didn't know any of those people, but I just seen some of the other kids they were talking to. And I was like, they're going to give heroin a bad name. I can't let that happen. You You need to show the cool side of, of junkies. That's funny. Yeah. I was like, I can't let them like make heroin. Not cool. You know, like I got to help, like, you know, make it be like, it's not all bad out here, you know? And, um, so I met them through the needle change. I did decide to film with them. And then what's funny is so through the years, we're going to, the thing going to Austin, there's a big gap between San Francisco and Austin. Because before I went to Austin, I was in Olympia. I was in Olympia, Washington, and I started working for some real Mexican mafia guys that were like scary. And, um, my sister, she became one of my customers. The boy that she was seeing. Hold at up, the wait. Time. So hold up, hold up, one more time here. So when you went to Olympia, you started dealing, because in San Francisco you weren't dealing. In San Francisco, you were just buzzing around on your bike, being like, "I'm high and I like to watch the world on my bike." And so what? And then you went to to Washington to clean up. So how did that escalate to you dealing? Yeah. So. In the documentary, they show that guy, Jackie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jackie didn't... I love Jackie. Um, he didn't want to get... Or he didn't want to be a junkie. He was one of those guys that... He tried to ultimatum me at one point. And he was like, okay, you need to make a decision. It's heroin or it's me. And I was like... I was like, you knew I was a junkie when you hooked up with me. I was like, you made a decision. That was your decision, to be with a junkie. And he was like... <laughs> and I, I feel guilty to this day about that. That was a horrible thing to do to a human, you know, to be, tell him, really, I do choose heroin over you, you know, and that breaks my heart. You didn't have another choice. You were 22 years I, old and you were on heroin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, come on. Jackie know, should have known better. I, I lo- like, Jackie's like a brother to me now. And I'm just like, that was so hurtful. I did that to him. But. Um, you know, we stayed friends throughout the years and my sister still sees him around in Portland and he's doing fine now. Um, but anyway, he basically wanted to like get clean all the time, drinking and smoking weed. And that never worked for me. I couldn't do it that way. And, um, I kept kind of like basically being like, no, I'm going to go back to dope. And like, you know, from that Bellingham thing that the documentary leaves us off at. We go back to Olympia, and basically, I start working for Mexican Mafia, which also gets Jackie into dealing, and he starts to like that. You know, he's like, okay, this is cooler. He's like, than being a junkie, I'm actually dealing and, like, making money. So both of us became drug dealers and, um, you know, started making money, um, but more than that, just doing more and more and more drugs. Like our habits got insane. And then, um, like my, my sister was split up with me in foster care, but then we reunited over and over throughout the years. And she lived in Olympia at the time, which is part of the reason why we went to that location to be near her. And she had a dude 
that they were already doing heroin too. We both kind of discovered heroin around the same time. I actually, I think the first time my sister did heroin, she came down to San Francisco to save me and I put heroin in her weed pipe because I thought everyone should try it. And then next time I saw her, she was with another junkie and became a junkie too. So, you know, she became one of our customers and we all, you know, we're doing dope together and on and off uh, having hotels or apartments together. But that boy that she was dating was doing robberies all the time to get his money. So he robbed all, and I, I got people traded me cars and guns, bad cars and bad guns. I mean, it's Olympia, so it's trash. You know, I had like a Volvo that had no muffler. I had like a, a little tiny gun. I left that in the trunk and her boy would steal my shit all the time and go rob shit with it. So any, anyways, he got arrested with his other friends and me and Jackie got scared and we had one friend in Texas and we didn't tell the Mexican mafia guys. We just fucking got on a bus and went down to Texas to escape that craziness. Cause we thought we were going to get pop neck and we didn't want to be there. Honestly, we did a favor for those mafia dudes that we worked for because we broke the chain that connected them, you know? So I was like, we're out of the picture. They can't connect these guys to anything. We're not involved. But then me and Jackie go down to Texas and we start dealing there. And, um, was there a source, was there a a source in Austin as good as your source in Olympia? No, this is what happened. I I'm trying to make the story short, but this is, no, no, we want to hear the juicy shit. This is the good junkie, the junkie business. What happens is we get down there. The guy that was Jackie's friend, that said he had customers lined up for us, that he knew connections, all the stuff. He was going to help situate us in, in the game down there. We get down there. This guy had a vendetta because I guess we sold him some bad shit one time. So he lied. He lied. And so we get down there and we had nothing. And we ended up doing all the dope that we had. And then we ended up trying to get on methadone. Mm. And it was hell we had to kick first we got on methadone that was horrible we started picking ourselves back up sort of but like we were still kind of homeless on and off again or in and out of hotels and we were not we were like having it rough again because like the dope down there also i don't know if this is still true to this day but i mean i don't know if it was true for you but i feel like people on the west or the east coast were kind of like you know, hard drug connoisseurs. And so people had to keep the quality up to compete with all of the drugs that come in there. But in Texas, I feel like it's like an island isolated. And I thought it was going to be different because it's by Mexico. Yes. People in Texas don't know quality. And so I remember the first time I saw the heroin that they sold there, it was black tar heroin, like we did on the West Coast, but it was cut so much. And I'm I was used to cutting dope all the time. I knew how much to cut dope and all that stuff. Their black tar heroin was yellow. That's how badly cut it was. And I was like, when I first saw it, I cried. I was like, this is bad. When you when you even, were when you were cutting tar, what would you cut it with? Um, we used brown sugar mostly, just brown sugar, coffee sometimes, but mostly brown sugar. Probably around what what year were you in Austin? That would have been, like, 98, yeah. 97, 98. It's funny because in, like, 98, 99, 2000, I would go to Austin 
for South by Southwest. And I would be, you know, and I was a heroin addict. I was working for a shitty TV company. And I would go down there with, I remember I went on one trip and I didn't have dope. I, I, and I couldn't get dope for some reason before I left the city. And I went out to cop and I copped some, some methadone. And I went to Austin, but I drank it on the plane. And I realized on the plane that it was fake, that it was weak or fake. And I got sick. And I went out into the streets of Austin, and I swear it was like the Black Tar Heroin documentary. Because I'm not, like, I've never been, like, a street person. Like, I fucking, like, I don't do well, like, without, like, cable TV. And, like, I'm not a good heroin addict, like, in the street. At home, like, I'm a good heroin addict. Like, with money, I'm a great heroin addict. But in the street, like, I'm not great. And... I remember I spent like hours in Austin trying to cop and the kid was trying to cop for me. And in the end, he's like, I don't know why I'm like doing this. And he stole my money. He was with me for like a day. And at the end of the day, he's like, fuck it, I'm leaving. And I got sick and I had somebody from San Francisco send me tar and I had somebody from home send me uh, powder and I got really sick in Austin. So I couldn't find anything. So I, 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 and I, it's like the dude who ripped me off, it's like, if you see me in the street, you're just going to rip me off. But he spent like five hours with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, he, he, I think he really tried because why would he put the time in? No. Right? Um, so, so, so tell me. So you're in Austin and all the dope is fucking yellow. So, mm-hmm. so how do you wind up dancing? How does that happen? So this happens because so I'm still. Here, cl- talk really closer feeling... to the phone. Talk closer to the phone. I want to hear your voice better. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm not really dealing. I'm really just, like, um, panhandling again. And, like, uh, we tried dealing, but, like I said, that guy lost us, our customers, and then, um, or didn't have them for us. So I'm out one day. I think I was at, like, another festival. It wasn't South by Southwest. It was something else, but I was out there. And um, some girl comes up to me. She literally just, like, pimped me. She just came up and she was like, but she recognized me from the heroin documentary. It had come out already and I was still using. And I was like, oh shit, like <laughs> that's like really fucking up my game. But um, she was like, she girl, had- she was like, you made the, you're the only one that made heroin look good in that movie. She was like, she's like, are you still using? And I was like, no. Like I tried to play it off. No, no, no. I got sober. And she's like, Oh, that's great. She's like, have you ever thought about dancing? And I was like, nah, like I'm like a bro, you know, like back then I thought I I saw myself as more of like a dude. And I was just like, no, like I, I like skateboard and I like, you know, sell dope and I shoot dope. You know, I'm not, I'm not like a a chick kind of like girl dancer or whatever. And she was like, you know, she's like, I, she just kind of flirted with me and I'm bisexual. So I was like, oh, you know, like I was definitely like giving her my ear. I was like, oh, really? Yo, you think I could be a dancer? And she was like, yeah, she's like, I can tell even though you dress kind of baggy or whatever and like kind of punk you, that you probably have a really good body. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, uh-huh. like, oh, <laughs> tell me more. And then she was like, uh, like, I mean, really, it, it no one really flirted with me that much anymore. You know, I had Jackie for, I was with that guy for six years. And, um, so I was like enjoying her flirting, but then she was like, so what are you going to do then tonight? And I was like, I mean, you know, I'm just out here, you know, hanging out. And she was like, so you don't want to make money. And I was like, I mean, I like money. And she's like, <laughs> I like money, idiocracy. It's like, I like money. She's like, um, well, 
She's like, you can hang out here tonight and just, you know, watch people get drunk and whatever. Or you could come with me and make $300. And, uh, she's like, let me tell you, if you don't like it, you never have to do it again. And I'll drop you back off. And I was just like, I was like, look, I don't have like clothes for that or like anything, you know? And she's like, I have an outfit that would fit you perfect. We look about the same size. And I was like, she's like, I'll be there with you. And I was like, I guess like $300. Sure. So I went with her and I will say that day I was like, this is what I do. This is what I fucking do. She put on like back then, you know, remember it's the late nineties. She put on like a, the only CD she had with her was like crystal method. Remember that band? Uh-huh. Yeah. She, busy child. Get busy child. You know, some fucking techno shit. Um, she puts that in. It's a, we show up at this house. It's a bachelor party with 40 guys. And the first thing they say is we didn't bring singles. Is it okay if we throw like fives, tens and twenties? And we're like, yeah, that's great. And, um, but she puts on that CD and it was like my natural instinct was to entertain these guys. I was like, this is how I, this is what I should have been doing my whole life. That's so you funny. Know? It's like the real, the I, ultimate I have arrived moment. So you like I, instinctively could dance the second she put I it on. I instinctively could dance and entertain that kind of an event. Like it was just how I, it's, it's basically like who I've been inside that I was repressing. But you had never done it before. It was never like, done it. That's incredible. And you were... No, I just... I came in. I just commanded the room. I walked in. I'm dancing to the music. I'm like um, making the bachelor lay on the ground, pouring beer down my chest, making him drink it off my body, like just entertaining the shit out of everybody. And I was like, this is like the kind of flirting that I like to do that I would get in trouble for so I never do it. Like... I like to be a flirt, but I don't like if people take it too serious because I always mean it in jest. I don't like really most of the time want to do more than just flirt. I'm really into that part. So I was like, this is it for me. And so after, you know, I made that money. And then after we were done, she was like, I got another call. Do you want to do another one? I was like, yeah. And then I was addicted to, to doing shows and, and, that made me and Jackie start getting more money. So I was able to like give him money to invest in more dope. We started selling. We started, I'm dancing while he's selling. Then we went to prison. Why? For selling heroin. Was the, did the dancing hook you up with better dope? Cause you had more money and stuff. Yeah. And you had like better clientele and you tapped into the, probably a no, better. We were, we were still street level peddling to like other, like other street punk kids. Like Jackie stayed his, you know, gutter punk self. And he would go meet kids out on the street. But what was happening is while I'm out dancing at night. Um, so we like the heroin dealing he was doing was just as, for his own income and I'm making mine. And, you know, like I got us an apartment that was in my name and I'm, I'm squirreling away money. And like, you know, I just fronted him some money so he could start his own business. So he didn't have to rely on me, you know? And so you were he like, starts doing it. it was the first time you realized that you weren't going to have to be peddling in the street. You were like, fuck, yeah. I, I can, I can be rich. I can be self-sufficient. I don't need to be homeless. You know what I mean? So how, yeah. what, tell us about the bust. So the bust happened because Jackie started doing a lot of like, Jackie was always into doing other drugs, you know? So I was like, I always viewed myself as more of a heroin purist with maybe some other pills to heighten my pleasure 
Um, I only did cocaine if that was like offered. I, ne- I never really liked to do it, but Zachy really liked to do a lot of Klonopin and like other shit with his heroin. And I mean, I would do that occasionally, but he was more into that, but it made him do dumb shit, like meet people at the house. And he was, um, he was meeting this girl that I, I also forget to mention that me and him were walking down the street a week prior to this bus where that girl OD'd on our dope. Mm. And I saw, basically, I met her at this bathroom in a mall, and um, I had her the dope because I, we were, I was meeting a female in a, ba- a bathroom, and just so Jackie couldn't do it. And so I met her, and I wasn't at work at the time, so I did it. And then I ran into Jackie again, and we started walking past this mall again, and I saw ambulances show up at the mall. Did she die? Like, she overdosed, but they resuscitated her. And I was like, okay, Jackie, I was like, she just OD'd and we're going to be in trouble. Don't meet her again. And he continued to meet her and meet her at the house for the next week. And she had had been wearing a wire, Mm. which is so outrageous for as low level of dealers we are. You know, when the cops raided our house, um, I had worked that night and I was laying in bed and I say in bed, but we, of course, never spent our heroin money on furniture or anything. So I'm on the floor with some blankets. and um, But we did have, like, a chair and a TV in the living room. And Jackie's out there. He's up early getting high. He had fixed me a shot that's laying next to me um, for when I wake up because he was a nice guy. And um, I hear, I'm laying in bed, and I hear, get down, get down. And I was like. And I hear a bunch of yelling and shit. And I was about to get up. Like, I'm, I'm working up the consciousness to get up and yell at Jackie. I thought he was watching cops really loud. Right. Like, the TV shows. Like, Dude, what the fuck? Why is he watching that shit so loud? So I'm literally, like, just about to push myself up off the floor so I can go yell at him. And then I hear, get down, get down. And they fucking slam a knee into me and, like, handcuffs me. And I'm already down, you know? And they pick me up like I'm a you know, little wet cat. And they just like throw me in the other room and start questioning us. and like, what is this shit? And they find, we had drugs everywhere in the house. That was also our recreational, like shrooms, um, acid, weed, some pills. And in Texas, they really don't play. You know, I got two felonies and a misdemeanor. Jackie got a felony. Um, he tried to tell me to blame everything on him. He's like, I'll take all the heat for the drugs. You just, whatever. But the apartment was in my name still. So you so took the heat I too, still, right? Yeah. So how long and did you have to go away for? Then, in in jail there, I was in county for seven months. Mm. And I didn't see an attorney. And I didn't see a judge for seven months. Every officer that ever talked to me, I'd be like, does anyone know that I'm here? Like I watched other customers of mine go in and out of jail three times in the seven months that I was in County. And I'd be like, tell people that I am alive when you go back out there, you know? And like, finally at seven months, an attorney comes in and she's like, you know, holding my papers. And she's like, wait a minute, you've been in here for seven months and you haven't seen another attorney or a judge or anything. And I'm like, no, It's like, you have the right to a speedy trial. I can get you out today. And I was like, yes, do that. So she comes back and she's like, okay, I can get you out today, but with uh, five years probation. And I said, no, I won't do that. I will not do probation in this state. There's no way I'll survive that. And she's like, I mean, it's a trap. 
Because um, you can go back to jail in Texas for just being outside without your ID. Right. If a cop stops you and you don't have ID, you're going back. Right. And um, so I said, no probation and I'll leave state. She's like, oh, you'll leave state too? And I was like, yeah, I'm not from here. And so she came back and she said two months in state jail. So their their jail system was kind of weird at the time. They have like city, county, state, and federal you know, so like I'm, I go to the state jail, which is like a prison for two months. So a total of nine months. Did you have to kick in county though, or did you? Were you getting dope? Oh yeah, oh yeah. How bad? Oh, yeah. It was pretty bad, and um, I I'm grateful though that I had already kicked methadone, and um, I mean it wouldn't matter wherever you kick methadone is miserable, but I kicked methadone uh, months earlier. How much methadone were you on in, in Austin? I think 120. Yeah. Small. How long were you on? 120 is a decent fucking dose. I know they give people so much now, but I was doing that. I was only on for six months. Okay. So you had I quit to- that. Yeah, I quit that cold turkey because my conspiracy mind is like, I remember I kept missing my doses because I was dancing sometimes past the morning, you know, like doing private shows. And, um, I come back in uh, three days sometimes, and the, the I got called in the counselor office they have there, and they're like, so you've been missing doses. You haven't been um, using heroin on the side, have you? And I was like, I mean, of course we're always going to lie. So I'm like, no. And they said to me, they go, oh, well, don't let yourself get sick. And I was like, "You what? And then in my brain, I was like, they want me to be subdued. They want me to stay asleep. And I was like, fuck that shit. So I quit cold turkey. I like your Texas methadone counselor accent. I think it's good. I like that. (laughs) I don't even know what voice I just did. You did the Texas method. You said, nobody needs you to get sick, honey. It was like Texas methadone. Yeah, like oh poor baby. Yeah, I like that. Um, so, So you kick fucking methadone in county. Were you getting drugs when you went no, to No, I kicked methadone before county, so I kicked heroin and, and whatever in, in county. And then w- were you getting drugs in the state, or what happened after that? No, so I, um, yeah, no, I kicked, and honestly, everybody in there thought I was a fucking uh, witch, which helped me out, because, you know, in prison, like, I'm little, and, like, all these bitches in there are huge, and, um... I was like, I'm going to get my ass beat. <laughs> but people were scared of me because I didn't sleep. And I just, like, back then I had long, long black hair, super pale, no tattoos, just, like, fucking Gollum just sitting on my bed like this, like, fucking. <laughs> and everyone was just, like, stay the fuck away from her. You were lucky because you were scary. Got- yeah, you were scary kicking. That's cool that you yeah. freaked out the big Texas women. And so yeah. when, when you got out of the state, where did you wind up? Out of the state, uh, whatever, jail, where did you go? So first, um, and also I want to side note that I did end up becoming friends with everyone in, in prison, though. Those girls, I ended up loving them. They loved me towards the end. Once my real personality started coming out, I mean, we everyone called me Jim Carrey in there because I would just make crack people up all day, doing silly shows and flirting with the officers. I will admit... Uh, I got away with a lot of shit because I was silly. The officers liked my little antics. Like, I do little fashion shows. I take garbage bags and dress up cute and, like, propose marriage to them and flirt with them. And I did shit all the time, just wild. 
Anyway, um, I made the best of it. Here, tell but, us, uh, tell us the craziest, like, fucked up jail story. Um, I think it's just like there wasn't really crazy that much crazy shit. Like, almost fights. Um, I will say, like, uh, I remember when Orange Is New Black came out. I thought it was gonna be dumb, but it is a lot like that shit it's it's very similar i i was like oh wow they actually did a really good job on these people on these stories but i mean i think the craziest shit is like i worked in the kitchen and they i mean i just think this is outrageous that every time we get off work from the kitchen they line all the girls up they make you lift your tits first of all i have always had small ones you don't have to lift my tits to make sure there's nothing under them but they still make you do it they make you lift your tits to make sure you're not hiding shit and then they make you fucking spread your cheeks and shit to see if they're uh, stealing shit from the kitchen. And they caught girls stealing fucking, like, massive amounts of hot, hot dogs in their pussies and shit. Brilliant. And I was just like, wow, bro. Like, I mean, there's enough, like, lesbian shit going on in here that no one needs to have a hot dog, okay? I don't know what y'all are doing. That's funny. Oh, my God. But, yeah, so they... You know, it wasn't anything that wild. It's just like a lot the the wild shit that was going on that I don't think that they talk about enough actually in TV shows and stuff is that it's weird how many like real like straight women because like I said I'm bisexual or pansexual or, or you know whatever I like every everybody but like there's just real women you know from the world that would never do gay shit the the minute they get arrested. It's just those, I think it's the mentality, like, they can't deal with being alone. Um, they go straight to being pimps, or, I mean, being pimped. And, like, there is a lot of pimp and ho shit going on in there at all times. And it's for a Swiss roll or a little Debbie snack, you know? People are getting fucked for a fucking pastry. <laughs> nice. Well. And I'm like, that's insane to me because I was like, you know, like, I like girls, but I'm like, I didn't hook up with anybody in there because basically the, the couple girls that I did think were hot um, had very terrifying girlfriends. And I was like, you're cute, but I'm not going there. I'm not trying to get beat. Nope. You know? Um, so, I mean, I had fun in there, but yeah, I kept to myself and I stayed out of trouble. One, and then, one thing that I keep hearing in your story is like, there wasn't any fear. Like you didn't have fear on the street you didn't where, where you didn't have fear in jail. You're like, oh, it was fun. Like, you were you not scared in any of these situations? For me, I got scared when I when I got addicted. I guess I got scared when I when I wasn't going to be able to do anything I wanted to do. But and 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 I got scared like when I didn't think I could get off of it. Um, when did you feel fear? You had to have felt fear at some point. Well, most of the time I ever felt fear was like hitchhiking. Right. And I hitchhiked all the time and I always carried a knife and I was always ready to use it. And right. I was like, if this guy tries anything, I'm going to fucking shank him. Right. But nothing bad ever happened there. I mean, I did, um, I get dropped off one time in Hilltop Tacoma and I nearly got raped that night. Um, but I escaped the guy. But even then I wasn't scared. I was disappointed. Right. Maybe I'm just a pussy. Maybe I'm just very fearful, you know? Yeah. Um, but you're, I think you're very, very, very brave. So what happened after you got out of there? So then I get out. Um, me and Jackie get out the same fucking day, the guy that I was with. And I was like, what? I was like, this is some bullshit. Because in there, I'm like, 
you know, because, you know, when you go to jail, prison or whatever, you're like, I'm not religious, but God, if you're up there, you know, like, please save me. And I'm like praying to the universe. And I'm like, hey, if I'm supposed to be with this guy, then, you know, make us get out the same day. And we get out the same day. I was like, really, universe? I mean, kind of, we're not that good together. But if you think we're supposed to be together, I guess. And so you were like, fuck, I didn't really, I didn't really want to be with Jackie. What, what is this? I, I didn't because we had become like brother and sister. And I just felt like, um, there was no sexual attraction really anymore. It was basically just like, I mean, I think we, we were together almost six years and like stopped hooking up with each other probably after three years. And I was just like, I don't get why this would still be my boyfriend, but it's that's. I've always kind of went with the universe plan. I've always been like, I mean, whatever is easier, I guess, because I don't like making decisions. And then he was convinced. Oh, also, me and him had been writing each other in prison. We're like, we're going to get out and we're going to get sober, too. And so the day we get out, though, we run into old customers of ours and they're like, oh, you guys are out. You want to get high? And we look at each other and we're like, yeah. <laughs> so we go, I mean, because this is the problem. This is the problem. And here is my uh, whatever public service announcement is like, if you are going to use jail as a way to control addicts, which I'm still not sure that's the way, um, you need to have a fucking program to help them reacclimate when they get released. You can't just release a drug addict and expect them to be fixed. You know what I'm saying? Like what did they think is going to happen? Me and Jackie are released. We don't have any money. I think, um, I had, uh, from a dying friend that left money before he died on my books. I had, um, like $12 or something. Jackie had like 20 bucks and we had the clothes that the jail gave us. Like we lost everything when our house was raided. I didn't have anything. Right. So we're wearing, we're wearing a prison outfit. We don't have an address. We don't have ID. We don't have money, really. We don't have a place to stay. We're just given a bus ticket to go back to Austin. And we get back there and we're like, yeah, we're going to get high. What else would what you do? Fuck? Exactly. If you have to sleep outside in the fucking cold behind a church, are you going to fucking not get high? I don't think so. You know, so we got fucked up. And, you know, then Jackie was like, the next day, he's like, oh, I don't want to be that anymore. Like, let's, you know, he has some friends in Colleen, Texas. Let's go there and fucking uh, do whatever. And we get there and he becomes an alcoholic and I hate that shit. You know, that's what I came from. My family's all that. So I was like, I, I'm sorry. I break up with them. I go back to Austin, go back on my drugs. And within, I think, three days of being there, that girl that I used to dance for literally drives by because I didn't know how to find her again. Um, she drives by me one day and she's like, Alice. And I was like, I don't remember her name either now. Like, um, she's like, dude, where have you been? And I was like, yeah, I went to prison and shit. And she's like, you want to go back to work? I was like, yeah. So I get put back on the rotation. And, uh, throughout this time I had reconnected with my sister again. Um, my sister got sober and she was trying, my sister knew that if I'm fucking using then, or if I'm out, I'm using. And so I tried to, of course, lie to her and be like, no, no, I'm, I'm out, but I'm, I'm, I'm staying sober. And she's like, oh, okay, well, why don't you get strung out and come here and go to rehab? And I was like, wow, that's like rude. And then, um, you know, I don't know, I think it's maybe six months into dancing again. I finally did just... I, 
I scrolled up money. Oh, because I also forgot. I ended up living in a crack house. Okay. That just now, slipped your mind. The crack, huh? addic- the crack addiction just slipped your mind somehow. No, I didn't get addicted to crack. I lived in a crack house with crack addicts because the rent was cheap. And this is my mentality my whole life. I've always been kind of against paying rent, like something about it. So I've always been like, now I don't need to fucking pay that much, you know, whatever. But um, so I'd always like find the cheapest place. And this, I used to sell a little bit of heroin, even though I wasn't selling anymore. I just had a little my own stash and I sell a little bit to this neighbor guy of mine was a black guy named Seba and I loved him. He was super cool. Drove a Cadillac, super old school pimp looking guy. And he was just like, he was a crack dealer, but he did a little bit of heroin too. And, um, he was like telling me he, he moved in with this university of Texas professor that had a huge house and, um, he rented a room from him and he was like, Hey, he's got a space of like $200 a month. And it was like an old Texas pantry. So it was like the size of a, a New York apartment, right? but it was it used to be a Texas pantry. I moved in there. Um, I had also found some young Mexican boy sleeping on the street one day and made him be my boyfriend. And, and I just like adopted him. And um, I found some customers of mine, had a little dog that had puppies and I got a, a little Sharpe pit bull mix. So I'm living in this little pantry with this little Mexican boy in this pit bull. Then that boy gets arrested driving that step of guy's car. And that was a stolen car. It turned out and there was drugs in it. And so he went to prison. So I'm there alone. And this is also one of the things that really helped me get sober is watching the crack situation in this house going down every day. And just waking up to like dudes giving other dudes blowjobs and fucking like um, just pimping hot shit between all these dudes in this house. And it was, and like the the guy who owned the house, um, he didn't have money, and all these people were like paying him a little bit of rent by crack. So he was all cracked out and just running around and jacking off everywhere. And I was just like, I need out of here. And I'm going to be like these guys, like, in a way, if I keep living this life. Like, I think I'm better than these people, but I'm not. So somehow you know? somehow living in this crack universe forced your bottom. Seeing this ridiculous, like, fucking bedlam of addiction, like, hyper addiction in that situation. Like, I can't even yeah. imagine it. And then you were like, you had your little moment because of that. Because you saw what you didn't want to be. You never know, yeah. like, how it's going to happen, though, right? Yeah, because, well, because, I mean, it's like oh, overdosing three times didn't do it for me. Um, going to prison didn't do it for me. I mean, there are things that eventually, like, also were in my back of my mind being like, this This is things about the addiction that's fucking with my life. Um, and, like, being alone didn't bother me. I liked being alone. Um, still do. <laughs> uh, but knowing that as, as a private dancer, so in my private dance field, I did private shows that were no touching. And um, I did have a customer that I did full service with. And I was like, for me, I'm, I don't have any beef with anyone who pays for or gets paid to have sex. But I'm such a dominating person that it's really hard for me to allow someone to have any kind of power over me, whether it be financial or physical or anything. And so being in a submissive 
way was really difficult for me. What is full service exactly? Like if you if, um having sex with a person. Okay, so you were in a situation yeah. like that. So so and yeah, it, and I was I had one guy. He actually looked just like Jerry Seinfeld, <laughs> who I thought was adorable. And um, he was a sex addict, and he was like a big coke fiend. So I had sex with him mostly because he also didn't mind that I, I got high, and he let me get high in his bathroom, and then I'd do piles of blow with him. And he'd call other dancers in, too. We'd have a bunch of girls. We'd have, like, you know, sex parties. And, like, he was someone who was like me mentally, so I, like, had fun with him. But I also knew I'm getting paid for this, and – um. I did enjoy it and that's fine. But it's like, for me, it's, it's hard to, uh, feel controlled by money in a sexual way. Like, like I said, I wish that I, that wasn't a problem for me. Cause I would have always had so much more money, but, um, I was thinking though, because I didn't do sex for money and looking at these guys that I live with that did, I was like, you know, how long in my junkie life, until I do it in the way they're doing it. You saw you know, it. You saw it. it. You saw it in front of you. Like what you did. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, that's yeah. intense. Though. I was like, I just, I don't care about, like I said, I don't judge people having sex for money, but I didn't want to do it for drugs like that. Cause it's not for money. They're doing it for the drug. It's funny because you, it seems like you did everything almost on your own terms. Like, if you were in jail, you did it on your own terms. And if you were on the street, you did it on your own terms. And if you're in that situation, you did it so it wasn't a bad time. But you saw, like, as soon as it could be a bad time, maybe that's where you got scared. You were like, I don't want to be in that situation. Yeah, I got scared. Well, it's also, it's just, when you're, what scares me, what scared me the most, I think, is just, like, how junkies we have the yet, you know? Like, what have I not done yet? Right. And they're so, and, and lying to myself. You know, all the times that I thought I wouldn't do something, I lied to myself and then I fucking did it. And not being able to trust my own self, because I've always had like, I, I like to be, you know, that Al Pacino, you, you can trust my balls, my word, you know, like just, and if I can't even trust my own word, I didn't like that. You know, I was just like, I, I don't trust myself anymore. I don't know how far I'm going to go because I keep doing shit that I said I wouldn't do. And then I fucking hate myself and how yeah. how how old were you at that point you had been in it for how long probably i was only like 26 or something but you started fucking like you started doing at serious 17 i right. started shooting up at 17 and i and ended around 26 yeah nine years isn't a bad run it's a decent run, yeah you know? it's a decent run right it's a decent run i think i shot up for the first time at 24 and i think the last time i shot up was 37 or something, you know? So it's like, but it's like, there's a certain run that you can live with or something. So what did you do? Where did you go? I mean, like I said, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell the girl that I worked with or anything. Um, well, cause also forgot to mention that her and her dude, um, on the second round of me working for them, I think they started to, also know that I was not sober. They knew I was not sober. And they, they started playing pimp games with me and they started really controlling my money. Like I, they would get, uh, we had like a, a guy that paid in checks and he would keep me sometimes for a week. And so he's paying a hundred dollars a day for a week. And this was a, like, a, a, like 
retired attorney in Texas and he just had money and me and him would go to Mexico and get pills and cocaine. Another guy that we would just get tons of blow and get girls and play truth or dare. Like this was like high life for me. I was loving it. And, um, but this couple I worked for weren't giving me my money. And I would be like, so what's up with this money from this last show, this last week or whatever. And she'd be like, what do you need? You'd be like, what do you mean what I need? I need, I need my money. And she'd be like, oh, you don't trust us? Right. You don't trust us? And playing that shit with me, I was like, oh, I need to get out of here. These people. And also, she did a two-girl show with me. We did Ecstasy. And um, she basically said that she was going to make it look for this guy for this show that she was having sex with me with a strap-on. But she had this really giant strap-on. And I was like, you're not putting that in. And she was like, no, of course not. Of course not. She got me really fucked up and her boyfriend videotaped and she did. And so she basically, it's like, it's rape pretty much because she said she wasn't going to do it. And then she did it. And I, I really, you know, I felt like they were going to use that tape to kind of like control me. Blackmail you know? or something. Yeah. We're going to like, even though no one, we didn't have the internet or anything back then or whatever, but I was just like, I was sus about them making a tape and then doing that to me. I was like, what are you guys doing with this? And like, also I was so fucked up in the tape. Like she kept trying to wake me up with putting cocaine under my nose and telling me to breathe in. I couldn't physically move. Like the ecstasy they gave me was cut with heroin, but I had already had some heroin that day. So I was dead. And I was just like, this is, these two are being fucked up with me. And so I didn't tell them, I didn't tell people at the crack house I lived in. I just saved up like $6,000 and um, just got a plane ticket to Portland where my sister graduated from a rehab. And my plan, though, was not to go to rehab. My I had that dog and um, my plan was to like go to a hotel room and kick and whatever. My sister was like, listen, I'll take care of your dog if you go to a rehab. And I knew there's no way I could take care of this dog while I'm dope sick. And so I was like, all right, deal. And, you know, my plan is basically just to get her to, like, watch this dog while I got well enough. But then, you know, I went to a detox in Portland that is awesome called Hooper. And Hooper hooks you up with a really cool, at the same time, this program that my sister graduated from called the Mentor Program. It's run by former heroin addicts. They fucking just... They're awesome. It's old heroin addicts that knew all my bullshit. I tried to come in there, run game. They knew the game. They've been through all the same shit I've been through. And they were just like, no, you're doing this. And I'm like, okay. And that, and that just worked. Yeah, because the, the program doesn't tell – they don't really tell you what to do. Actually, I'll make it sound like they did. But they don't. What they do is they give you a place to live, the key to your own little room. And they tell you basically you have to go to a meeting every day. You have to go to your group therapy and acupuncture and have clean UAs whenever they ask and they're going to help you look for jobs. And you have basically the ability to either use their help or fuck off, you know? So it's like, 
They give you the power to help yourself. It's like you get enough rope to hang yourself with. Yeah, exactly what they say. That's the actual words they say all the time. Right. And before that, had you been to meetings? Had you tried? I've been. I never liked it. Every time I went to meetings before, I was also halfway still fucked up, though. You know, I just didn't. And then the people using the word God always offended me. I don't like religion. So I was always like, fuck this fucking Jesus bullshit. Fuck y'all, you know. But I learned later on that... That's just a word that people feel comfortable with, and I can use whatever word I want. Totally. I mean, that's the coolest thing. Like, like I mean, for me, when I went to meetings, I never wanted to get clean. Like, I, I just couldn't afford to keep going, and I was miserable, so I would go to meetings, and I would always want to just keep using. In the end, when I got clean, like, I just needed help. I just needed a plan. Like, I, I wasn't going to build the furniture without directions. I didn't, ha- I didn't have a chance. You know what I mean? So, like, that's how it worked for me. I think it's amazing. So it sounds like basically the first time you really tried, it worked. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, because the, the times I tried before was only I tried for my sister before or for someone else before. I never really tried for, well, I will also admit it still wasn't really for me. It was for that dog. Um, but that's I interesting. Loved- because nobody gets nobody gets clean for a dog, so that's like a beautiful. I, mean, I would. I'm I'm like one of those people that dogs to me are like my children, you know. And one of the things that always upset me, you know, why I was in foster care. My mom's a child abuser, you know, and like love her, but she was an alcoholic. She get blacked out. She, you know, did what she did, and I forgive her and everything. But at the same time, I always envisioned if I was to ever have, you know a child or a dog or whatever, I'm going to take care of it right? and do all the best things for it and have it, give it the best life. And for me, like knowing that I was being such a bad dog mom, when I had Zeus, his name was Zeus. He was like a black Sharpay pit bull mix, gorgeous dog. Um, and I just felt so guilty for not being able, not walking him every day. Like he needed to be walked, not doing all the right things for him. And I, I wanted to be the best mom for him. So going to rehab, I thought like I get, I could get myself in a place where I could take better care of him. But I realized after finishing the program, it was like a six month program. That dog was with my sister the whole time. And I was able to go in and out of, and visit my sister and the dog all the time, which I did. But um, he had become a, a family member for her and her daughter and her husband and their dog. And like, that was his family. And, you know, like I had to come to terms with the fact that he ended up in the better place anyway. And I wasn't ready to be a parent or a dog mom or anything. I still hadn't learned how to take care of myself that well, you know? So it took me maybe two years or whatever of being sober before I got a dog again. I was like, I need some time to like really get myself to be a better person. Right. And be a better, you know, be capable of doing it. Be capable of taking care of something else. Like they say not to get a plant or whatever. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. They say you can't take care of a plant when you first get clean. I mean, I still can't take care of a plant, though. I got clean. I, had, I already had a, a kid. I had a five-year-old kid. So, like, I was going to have to figure something out. You know what I mean? My plants were dying, but my daughter survived. Thank God. Well, um, at least kids and animals can tell you when they're hungry. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Now... You had this movie out, you know, this is before, you know, because obviously you've been in a bunch of like big movies and all these things and like and made the scene in L.A. and, and like became like 
a renowned person, but was the claim to fame always the Black Tar Heroin documentary? Like, when people would see you, would they connect you to that? No. No, what's what's really weird is people don't, different pockets of people all know me from different things. Right. No, there's no consensus. It's like some people will be like, oh, I saw you in a Seether video. I saw you in a, um, you know, some rapper's video. Oh, I saw you in this one other movie and I'm in a bunch of B movies. Or I saw, most, pe- most people have not seen my movies. Um yeah, some people have seen, probably more people have seen the documentary than anything else. So that is probably one of the bigger things I've ever done because it was also on HBO, you know, and multiple times HBO re-aired it. And um, then, yeah, the people mostly, if not that, they know me from dancing, you know, and they and, and people just know me from walking around the street. You're not like people are like, I saw you one time with your mohawk up walking your dogs. Oh my god, it was a mind blowing moment for me. And I'm like, what? I was just walking down the street. You made the scene. That's awesome, though. And when you when you when you watch the movie now, when you watch the documentary, and you see yourself shooting up in the bathroom or whatever, like, is it true? I mean, like, when I watched it, like the today, the first thing I thought was. You know, I don't even know how I would react to seeing myself at that age, getting high, being like a a different person. You know what I mean? Like, what what is that experience just to see yourself with that totally different mindset? The thing is, is that um, I don't have that same innocence anymore. So it's not it's like when you see yourself, when you've become knowledgeable versus, you know, being that person innocence ignorant just using back in the day and not knowing the future and not knowing also the deep-seated roots of why you're doing it and all that other shit that's part of you know how you become after you're sober it's like you know it's not triggering for me anymore because I'm so sober now that I I have like a real healthy fear of drugs now Maybe not, maybe even irrational also sometimes. Like, I mean, sometimes if I take like a Benadryl, I have a panic attack. I just, I don't, I couldn't imagine using now. It's, it's terrifying. That's, I'm scared of now. Like legit, like I could die. I could get a bad batch. I could, you know, get robbed. I just all, I just think of all the bad things that never happened back when I used, but like could, I mean, the ODing definitely happened, but, um, I'm just like, yeah, I just, I have good fears now. That's awesome. You know? I love, I love, cause then you tie it up for me also. Cause I'm asking about all these fears and here's the fear, you know? And yeah. that, I mean, like when I take Benadryl, I, I like get high from it. I like sleep deeply and I have crazy dreams and I'm like, I, I would be tempted to take it again. I don't get fearful when I take Benadryl, but I, I, it does affect me in the same way. It is a profound, like, that's what happens when you're abstinent, though. And, like, I don't, I don't think about using because if I use, like, everything I have would probably go away, you know? And, and like, you built such a life up. I'm sure that's part of the fear also. You've built such... Well, yeah, it's like, I think, you know, like, some, some you know, psychologists and people like that who have been analyzing drug use, drug use and stuff like that say that, 
you know, most people aren't going to become an addict when they have a lot to lose. And I do agree with that to a degree, but I definitely, you've, we've all met people that had a lot to lose that still became addicts. So I think there's like, eh, it's not always true, but I mean, I think about when I'm kicked out of foster care at 17, everything I own is just in my backpack. Um, I, how, how, what am I, am I going to lose my job? No. Am I lose my car? No. Am I lose my family? No, I had nothing until I realized one of the things I really do value. And that's another thing that keeps me fearful now is my health. You can lose your health. And I didn't realize that when I was younger, you can lose your teeth, you can lose your looks, you can. And honestly, that's, that's another thing that I don't, people don't talk about that much either. I think vanity was a little helpful for me. You know, like I be, I remember being in prison and this lady, I always had people telling me I looked younger than I was, but in prison, this counselor that was there, she said this and I feel she said this knowing that I would respond properly to it. She said to me, um, you look really old. You look a lot older than you are. And no one ever said that to me before. And I was like, you know, fuck you. I would be mad at first. Like, fuck this bitch. What's she talking about? I don't look old. Everyone says I look younger. And I started looking at myself in the mirror and I was like, oh shit. And I was like, and I'm like looking in my eyes and I was like, oh my God, you also got like have like these soulless eyes. My eyes. And she said that too. She's like, your eyes just reflect that you have no soul, you know, kind of shit. And I was just like, dang, she's right. And, um, but that like helped me to seeing the, um, the youth fade and the, you know, just like not being cute. Like I used to be, you know, and just like realizing you can lose that too. She was smart. She pressed the right buttons. She basically yes. activated the, the vanity fear. Like I hear you. That's cool. I, I like that. Um, and I think like, I really appreciate you coming on this thing. I really do. You've told an amazing story and you dance and stuff. So you're around, quote unquote sex workers right and Mm -hmm. like it's a phrase that I never get to use like I don't think we've ever had anybody on the show who's like a real sex worker like and and drug addiction is probably a really 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 serious issue in that industry like do you see it like do you do you have do you try to help these people or like what do you see I mean honestly I think it's just as prevalent in that industry as it is anywhere else you know so it's you don't think it's more prevalent in it I don't think so. And I think it's just, um, you know, of course, it seems like it to other people. It's stigmatized, it's, right? It's stigmatized, like I mean, the it's, idea. It's, it's like any other bar, you know, there is, it's a bar, you know, late night activity. But I, I never felt like most of the girls that I worked with were like, you know, like, like anybody else, like alcohol is a weird one for me. And I, I kind of always stay away for, from judging it because I don't know who's becoming an alcoholic or who is, you know, what it, just binging or I, it's, it's a weird one for me. I'm like, I am glad that alcohol wasn't my drug of choice. Cause it's really hard to know if you really have a problem sometimes, you know, I think it's so socially acceptable and legal and it's just, to me, it's such a question, but, um, you know, like most of the girls I work with maybe did a, like Portland had a bad hair or a cocaine problem. I will say that the, the dancers in Portland, maybe even still were like, on some next level cocaine trips. And I was always like in the dressing room, girls were doing blow every night and be, and they'd always look me dead in the eye 
after doing a line and be like, I barely ever do this. And I'd be like, you mean like yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before that you do this every night. Are you fucking lying? Like what? To me, I'm right here. They're lying to themselves you know? though. That's the classic self-deception. You know what I mean? I know. Now, and with the, uh, with the Black Tar Heroin movie, like, do you ever talk to anybody in the movie? Like, I actually texted Tracy. I was like, we should do a Black Tar Heroin reunion show. Like, like, do you so it's just me and her and one other person because everybody else died. Did everybody else died? I mean, a lot of people died or probably be really hard to find now. But, um, I mean, I definitely talked to Tracy some like, and me and her definitely, you know, cheer each other on, on Instagram on here and there and stuff. And, um, uh, yeah, I never, and I didn't know her back then. You yeah, know? you guys like, weren't like, in the same in the same scene at all, right? No, and and the only one I knew in that documentary was Oreo. He was the homie. I loved him, and I think he's still alive. Um, I just don't know how someone would reach him. And then Dick, they showed Dick in the beginning of the documentary, and also when I'm going to the bathroom, he's walking next to me. He's the black guy with a goatee wearing a trench coat. Yeah, 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 in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, he's smoking a cigarette in, like, the very beginning, right? Yeah. Dick and I had a long-ass history of, like, squatting together and, like, me and him almost killing each other a couple times. Like, me and him... Uh, you know, we're alone in the squat together multiple winters when everybody else would go somewhere else. And just like, um, we're like, you know, we, we're never like liked each other that much, but we'd always end up getting stuck with each other. But, um, we, you know, and then we'd have a buddy to get high with, but me and him always beefed. We just had personality conflicts all the time, but I like love him and didn't like him at the same time. Sure. And even the last time I saw him, it was so random. Like I had visited Portland and I hadn't been there in years and are not Portland, uh, San Francisco. And, um, I get, uh, I'm on the street walking down the street and this, you know, bond was pushing a shopping cart turns around. It's him. And he's like, Oh shit, Alice, what's going on? And I'm like, Oh my God, you're alive. He's like, yeah, you want to party? And I was like, dude, no, Absolutely not. Right. Ugh. And then Papa Antonio shows up at the next the next oh, stop. Oh God, reunion. <laughs> right, crazy. Um, Alice, thank you so much for coming on, though. I mean, like you dropped some great dopey stuff, and you have how much time do you have? Twenty five years, twenty two years. Yeah, twenty years. Amazing. Two two twenty oh one is my sobriety date. Amazing. And you don't go? Do you go to meetings or you don't go to meetings? I occasionally, virtually, yeah. All right, good deal. Good deal. Yeah. Um, you were an amazing guest. I'm so glad we did it. I'm so glad we we survived the Zoom bullshit and all this stuff. We did it. We did it. So thank yeah. you. And if you ever need anything from me, please hit me up. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And, um, you know, I just to let everyone know on Instagram, like, I definitely do always answer my DMs. And I do get a lot of people asking me uh, questions for the uh, black power heroin and stuff and I try to be supportive of other fellow addicts that are still suffering that's part of my AA that I still do one thing I never do is I ask people if they want to I never ask anyone to plug anything but do you want to plug anything I mean not really I just you know like I do have a clothing line malicious creatures at maliciouscreatures.com nice um and you know you can follow me on instagram official malice mcmunn or you know whatever cool I'm out there Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Dave. Thanks for having me. Right on.
All right. So that was incredible as far as I'm concerned. That was crazy dopey. Good to have a real heroin addict on the show. Her name again, Alice Malix McMunn. And now I am joined to some with somebody who is almost a heroin addict. One of my oldest and sweet. You were almost a heroin addict. Could have happened. It was like you're a you millimeter. Anything's possible. You were. It's more than anything's possible. If you were yeah, millimeters away, if you go at light speed and you change the trajectory, you'll be in another solar system. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Anyway, it is my dear friend, Jeremy. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you, Dave. It's always, always good to be here. Uh, hello, Dopey Nation. I hope you're all doing well. And Jeremy and I never do the Zoom while we do this. This is awesome. I feel like I'm hanging out with Jeremy. I know. It's nice. It's I get to... to see your office yeah. and everything. It's nice. The pictures on the wall of the kids. This is lovely. I call the office Schlub City. Um, I actually just invented that. So now, from now on, the Dopey office is officially known as Schlub City. And Jeremy, uh, I wanted you to come on the show. You haven't been on the show in a while. Uh, this week, I had forgotten about it because I'm forgetful. It was our friend Todd's, it would have been his 47th birthday. Um, and it's funny that you got roped into Todd's life at all. Todd obviously was my one of my friends from college and Jeremy met him through me and then they took off, started their own relationship and they took off and drove to California. Um, and I literally think of Todd every day um, because, you know, I'm, I love Todd, but I'm broken. And uh, I always think, I wonder how he would have handled life and he never handled life without drugs. But uh, how do you think of Todd from time to time? Oh, God, yes. I mean, you know, and, and it's one of those things like where where you're not expecting it to pop up and it does, you know, like I'm listening to Spotify and I have some terrible, you know, like reggae playlist going and then like Rocker T pops up and then it's just thinking about Todd for like a good solid two hours, you know, because we must have listened to that one album driving across country like a thousand times because remember there were no, uh, there were no smartphones and no Spotify and no nothing else. So it was just like whatever CDs and tapes you had in the car. That was it. And you didn't want to listen to like Jerry Garcia band live at the at, at the knitting factory in 1982. Todd I had stopped after Jerry Garcia. Not even the band part. I would have stopped after that and said no, nah. Uh-uh. He uh, he had amazing books of music. Uh, I I I loved driving around and was, Todd had like eclectic. He would half of his life after he became unemployed, he would sit around at his computer just making CDs like his parents spent like 10 grand on that computer and he would just burn CDs and movies. You remember he'd go to the fucking video store, rent DVDs and spend a day burning them. Do you remember that? Yep. Yeah, I mean, it was basically, it was, it was like my dad taping everything off of HBO. Like, he bought it a VCR, and we had, like, 700 videotapes that you could never watch. And, like, he would meticulously catalog them and everything else. But Todd was the same way. It's just, like, all these, like, <laughs> these DVDs and CDs with just, like, one word written on it. And, like, I don't know what this is, man. We did, uh, we, we do a dopey Zoom, a dopey Patreon Zoom every month, the last Saturday mm-hmm. of the month. And uh, we often play a game show game in it. And uh, and it's like a question with multiple choice answers. And the, one of the questions last week was, what uh, what classic sitcom did Todd have on repeat 
uh, in the house in North Hollywood. So, I mean, that's pretty funny, right? And the answer, of course, is... Uh, I definitely know the answer to that question. Answer the question. Oh, God. Are you kidding me? It was... Uh, I mean, like, I, I, I don't even want to say the name of it. I just want to sing it. I mean, for looped incessantly for hours on end. I don't think he could have slept without it. And then somebody sent me a picture, some uh, a Dopey Nation fan, a Dopey podcast fan, member of the Dopey Nation in New Zealand, sent me a picture of a door in the hospital in New Zealand, whatever city he lived in, where it said uh, drug and alcohol counseling, and it said like Hep C testing, and then there was the sticker with Todd's face on it with the Dopey logo over it. So, <laughs> and you know Todd would have been like, nice ones. He would have been so excited that he was on the fucking drug and alcohol fucking door. And um, would love that. And I love to reflect on uh, Todd. You know, Todd was one of my favorite people. Uh, but obviously, the saddest part was Todd never found any bit of sobriety, no piece of recovery. Any bit he had, he hated. So it just it never happened for him. But. And it's corny. You know, it's like I never understood the idea of somebody living on in your heart until recently. You know, I never understood that. And now people get to live on in my heart and obviously in your heart. Uh, we lost parents and friends and whoever, and uh, it, it, it keeps going. And um, I wanted to tell – I wanted you to remind the, the audience. I, I lose track of what stories we tell and what we don't tell. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dopey Nation. I lose track of everything. But Jeremy mentioned a story, which is one of my favorite Todd stories. Um, and it was around the, the souped-up Hyundai that he needed to have, right? So why don't you yeah, break it yeah. down? Where, where his SUV was costing him too much money, so he decided to sell it and get a less expensive car in order to uh, save a little money. He could take the difference and start applying that to, to you know, his life. So he goes away in the SUV and comes back with this super Hold up, up, hold up, hold up. But before you even go further, his SUV was like the most classic. It was like a Jeep Cherokee, right? It was like... Yep. It was like the most beautiful car. It, 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 it traveled everywhere incredibly well. It was like the coolest car. Anyway, continue, please. Yeah, it wasn't costing him that much extra money. It's not like he was like, and, and like I remember him saying, like, oh, you know, it costs so much money to fill up the tank. I'm just like, okay, but it's not that much more. And, you know, if you drive it responsibly, it's not that big a deal. So he disappears one day to trade in this car to get some extra money and get something less expensive. And I look in the driveway. I'm just like, who the hell is pulled up to the house? And it's this electric, metallic, blue drop low to the ground. I think it had a spoiler on it. I don't even remember what kind of car it It had, was. like, fins. It was a hundred. Day. It was it like was it was the it, most. It was ridiculous, right? It's like if you took it and made it into a Batman villain's car, you know, and it's sitting there and it's gleaming, and I'm like, what the hell is this? Did he get a lift home from somebody? And he was like, no, this is the new car I got. And I was like, wait, so this was less than the Jeep? And he goes like, yeah. And then he tells me how much <laughs> it costs, and I'm like, Todd. That's more than you paid. He's like, no, no, no. But then there's the money in between. I'm like, yeah, but you paid the money to get this. <laughs> like, it's it's ridiculous. It's like he set off to be like, you know, like I'm gonna go bring the cow to market, and came home with magic beans. 
He came. It was like it was like a, a car, like a Korean manga character would drag race in or whatever. Exactly. And, and yes, it was, he's, yeah, it's like I, initial D. I think he spent thirty eight thousand dollars on the car, you know, and he didn't have any money. He didn't have no fun, money. And and he would. It was like the perfect like meth addict's car, I guess. Like I, he came home. It, it took him. You know, he was riding high with that shit for a while. And then one day, do you remember when it hit him? He's like, <gasps> he's like, how it, what, didn't he give it away, though? That was the end of the car story. Honestly, I have no idea. I think he eventually like like traded that one in for another. No, I know. Uh, no. He gave it away to someone who told him he was going to make the payments and the guy never made the payments. <laughs> That's what he did. But in the meanwhile, he had the other plan to pay for the car and and why don't you tell that classic chestnut? <laughs> So this is also a good one. And again, like classic time, and the type of thing that like, cause we never saw him do this. All we had was the vision and, the, and our imagination. <laughs> to fill it in. But it's one of those perfect moments where your imagination was probably a hundred percent correct. So he got this job who got it for him. Oh, it was uh, what's his name? That big dude. Um, oh, his friend. Uh, oh, there was this other guy. Uh, who was a construction where he was working, he was working construction. He wasn't construction worker, he was working construction. And he got and he was like, Todd was like, hook me up, get me the job. Do you so remember course, who the, do you remember who the friend was? I, I can I can kind of picture him in my head. I his name just jumped out of my out of my head though. But it was like big dude. Let me ask you this. Yeah. This is a great Todd trivia question. Do uh, you remember the name of Todd's primary meth dealer? Oh, wow. It is the greatest, no. the greatest meth dealer name in the history of meth dealers. His name was Diggy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was Diggy. Diggy. Anyway, continue, please. I got to hit Diggy up. Yeah. Um, oh, Diggy. Diggy. Uh, and then the classic Diggy story was me and Todd and Diggy. And understand, Jeremy had his shit together. Me and Todd were like near death Always. I was like, I was strung out. Well, when I met Diggy, I was strung out on meth because I was promising myself I wouldn't do heroin or pills. And I, and I, Todd like went to the kitchen to like squeeze some lemon into the water or something. And I was like, (laughs) Diggy, I was like, Diggy, come here. I was like, Diggy, can you get me some heroin? And he was like, yeah, no problem. I got you. And then I went to work. And when I came home, Todd's nodding out. He's like, I'm not going to let you do the dope, man. He took my dope from Diggy. Diggy gave it up. Um, but anyway, back back to the story. I love it that he threw himself in front of me. He took the bullet. Today. He took the bullet. He's because he's so selfless. He he took my heroin from me. <laughs> or how about when how about the um, dog, Jeremy? How about when I found the dog and I brought the dog home? Do you remember that? No. Yes, you do. You just I had a job on a set. And there was a little English bulldog, and he followed me around. He followed me around on the set. And at the end yep. of the day, I said, I'm going to open my car door, and if the dog gets in, I'm going to keep the dog. That's how I ended the day. The dog came in. I brought the dog home. Poor Jeremy. Todd has a gigantic pit bull at home, and I bring this little Huge. little English bulldog at home, which I'm not planning on caring for at all. I just figured Todd <laughs> would do it. And um, 
And, and he, I, I bring the dog home. I named the dog after Monty Burns, named him Monty, remember? Mm-hmm. And, and Todd's dog was named Maggie, and Maggie and Monty are just scraping up the house. You could hear, I could still hear the sound of their claws on the floor. And yeah, their uh, uncut nails going across the hardwood floors, yep. I think I sent Todd to get Monty his shots, and then, like, I think, I think uh, my girlfriend at the time came up and I went away for the weekend and when I came home Todd had given the dog away he just he just gave it away you know he gave the dog away and I'm sure you were very pleased with that I'm sure you guys sat down and Todd said he's not going to take care of the dog and you were like please give it the dog away <laughs> I don't even think there's that much in it it was probably all happening in his head he's just like I gotta get rid of the dog here and jeremy will get mad if this continues so now my nora's like daddy did you ever have a dog i was like i did she was like what was his name his name was monty what happened to him todd gave him away <laughs> i had him for i had him for about two weeks maybe maybe a week but anyway back to this story back to the back to so the yes, yes. So this this large dude who had, had befriended Todd somewhere, I forget exactly how this happened, got him this job working construction. And it was one of those things, like when you hear it, like out loud, there's something deep in the back of your head that goes, this, this, there's something wrong. This is not a good idea for, for multiple reasons. Like, could I see Todd playing a construction worker on a sketch, you know, like yelling at someone going, hey, baby? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Like, Right, but like showing up at 5 a.m. to do heavy lifting and things like that? No, of course not. I mean, like, I remember when he almost got fired from some job for coming late, told us, like, he was going to be fired for going late to some. I think it was the weed store. We was working at the weed store. He was like, he showed up late and his boss got mad. And then he was like, he was leaving the house. And I was like, Todd, you're like, you got to go, man. You're going to be late. He's like, yeah, 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 okay. And he leaves. And then he calls me from McDonald's <laughs> getting breakfast. And I'm like, why are you not at work, man? You can't be go getting McDonald's breakfast if you're already late. That's like, like, that's the worst thing to show up late with a McDonald's bag. Like, that's just showing you don't give a damn. Do you remember the end of the weed store job? Like, some... Oh, yeah. Try to tell the story, and I'm going to tell my version. But try to remember that well, story. All I remember was was him constantly stealing from them. <laughs> you know, like just fistfuls of of marijuana that he was stealing from them. And then eventually, like they just they they were tired of it and just got rid of him. See, the, the story that I remember was yes, he would always he stole from everybody he ever worked for. God bless him. God bless Todd. Uh, you know, when he delivered weed in the city, he would pinch every box, pinching time. Oh, yeah. uh, when he worked with me on the set, he stole that laptop. Todd right. Todd needed to steal. It was just he needed to steal. Um, but, uh, but, that, but that weed store job, he told me a story. He was hanging out with one of the people that worked in the store. And the story he told me was that they went into his bag probably looking for whatever he pilfered. But what they found instead of the bud was heroin. And they fired him for that. That's the story that I remember from the weed store job. But uh, I was like, I was like, dude, why are they going in your bag? He's like, he's like, I don't know, but I'm sure it's because they knew he was stealing. All right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure they went like, you're stealing. Like, no, can we check your bag? Yeah, sure. Right. Right. 
dope. I'm sure I'm sure he had heroin in there, the laptop, you know, like everything. You're right. Um, so so he's, he gets this construction job, and in the back of your head, you know this is a bad idea. So he goes one day, and he comes back, and, like, he's he's visibly shaken. And you know Todd. He was, like, a bright light. He's always smiling. He was always, you know, like, everything was going to be okay. You know, like, he was going to laugh it off. But he genuinely looked, like, tired and shaken. And I was like, so, like, what, what happened? <laughs> and he's describing this thing where he's holding this, like, like 50 to 80 pound hose that's got like dense concrete running through it. He's got to sort of like finesse it into this trench to lay a foundation. And I mean, I think during the time when he told the story, he said like, Jeremy, I think I almost died like six times, (laughs) you know, just from like either falling into the cement and being covered by it or the, the hose crushing him or whipping up and hitting him in the face or whatever it was. And, and you could tell from the way he was telling the story that everyone on the work site was already just really mad at him. Well, how, Um, how could he have possibly, I mean, when I picture it in my head, is the opposite. When he told me the story, all I could picture is a truck full of water, not a cement truck. And Todd, like the, the hose flying in the air and Todd, like Bugs Bunny, trying to hold on to the hose. That was the, the, the image I always had. But that was like one of the only times that Todd knew he was overmatched immediately. Oh, yeah, instantly. Because he only lasted one more day. And I think he quit halfway through the day. I think he just left. He was an amazing quitter. I mean, he was an amazing quitter. I just, you know, we 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 make fun of him because we loved him, and I mm-hmm. we still love him. And like, uh, you know, if only he could have figured out how to quit this thing and and find something else. You know, there obviously, yeah. like, when anybody doesn't make it, you know, there's bad luck, there's bad shit. Todd never gave himself a chance to do well, really. He just never gave himself the time. So if you guys are out there using know that you can die or know that you can find something joyful and fun. Um, but yeah. it was his birthday, and uh, I think it's very important to acknowledge Todd. His birthday will always be a holiday as long as Dopey happens. So I don't know what we call it. Happy Todd Day. Um, yeah. Whatever. But, uh, I'm trying to come up with something off the top of my head. This isn't easy. In AA, they they when a coincidence happens in AA, they call it a God shot. So when Todd used to come on the show, we'd call it a Todd shot. Me and Chris <laughs> used to say that. So the audience often says that. So happy Todd shot day, which is also pretty. Yes. yes. And uh, so, Jer, what's going on with you? If you guys don't know, Jeremy's a very accomplished teacher, but more importantly, actor, comic writer i've known him since i was like three what's going on with you um you know keeping on it's been a crazy year uh it really really has um you know like and i know we're all we're all dealing with this insanity in like various forms so you know like whatever you're doing out there keep it up we're we're all in the same boat um it was it was crazy though because like before the pandemic um my life was of like a bad country song uh the woman that i was seeing for a long time left me my dog died and then the world ended right and it would just yeah if i had a pickup truck it would have been perfect um and uh, yeah so that's what it was and you know like it was rocky at the start man like i was i was like i got back into like smoking a lot and drinking a lot and it was it was i mean like it was bad for a long enough that i could go 
this is not a good idea if I keep doing this. So um, it's it's been like nice, at least, you know, and my mom came out and stayed with me for a while, which was wonderful for multiple reasons. Um, but for the last couple of months, it's been really nice. Like I've had some really nice clarity. I kind of cut all of that out which was great. And I've just been like focusing on teaching and, you know, like there's more performing coming back. I just had a, an episode of a Disney show that I was on come out with a couple of weeks ago called just roll with it. Uh, that's absolutely, like, it's one of the craziest things I've ever done. It's a choose your own adventure sitcom that Disney produced. Is it fun? Uh, it, yeah, it was great. It was, it was amazing. It was a crazy story just going into it because they originally hired somebody else for it. And then halfway through the week, they fired them and hired me. So that was weird. Um, but it, it was great. I mean, top to bottom, it was a lot of fun. Is Henry Danger over? Uh, yes, Henry Danger is over, but Danger Force is the spinoff. So Henry Danger was on for five seasons. It's on Netflix now. And if uh, I'm in the last season, I'm, I'm the villain, the beekeeper. Uh, probably the worst villain anyone's ever come up with, which is why I like it so much. Like, literally, I just have a gun that shoots bees. That's it's, it. It's, That's all I have. It's like classic uh, but I did 60s. Get a layer. I got a layer, which is great. What's a layer? I got like a like a villain's lair, you oh. know, like Joker is like in the like the defunct, you know, amusement park. Like I got this old honey factory and they like they gave me a logo and all this stuff. It was awesome. That is um, awesome. So yeah, so he- yeah, Henry Danger's over, but uh Danger Force, the spin-off, they they took away uh uh Henry's powers and they sort of the, the uh, spread them out to four other kids. It's like when they reboot things like Sam and Cat and, you know, um uh, iCarly and stuff like that. It's, you know, it's how Nickelodeon keeps the viewership and, you know, keeps an idea going that's popular. So yeah, uh Henry Danger's on on Netflix right now. Danger Force is on Nickelodeon. I'm in one episode of that. Nice. And, you know, beekeeping? I, 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 Are you going to be the beekeeper huh? on Danger Force or no? Oh, yeah. In the first episode of Danger Force, it's awesome. Uh, one of the kids, because they don't know how to use their own powers, blasts a hole in the wall of the super jail. And it's literally like a clown car. They got they got villains that went back from the beginning of the show. And we all pour out of this this hole in the wall, basically saying, like, well, they're all loose again. We're going to have to round them up. So, yeah. So that's so fun. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm in the universe for, for Danger Force. Now, one of the things about you that I always... I think it's interesting because I think like sometimes I struggle with the idea of of addiction as a disease. Like that's a weird thing for me. Uh, I always like to call it an affliction, whatever. I know that I have it. Uh, obviously, you know that I have it. And um, we came up, though, very much using together. Very much. Oh, yeah. Very much. Like every yep. night, uh, Jeremy would rollerblade across town to either my parents' house or my house, and we would get as stoned as we could be. Um, we would we tripped from time to time, and when we started doing heroin, Jeremy got into it. Um, until you were like, I don't want to be fucking strung out. But the weed always stayed around. Now, the question is, like you said at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, like uh, you found it was getting a little bit heavy, how do yeah. you change the channel? And when you can change the channel, is that how you know you're not afflicted? I, I mean, like, as far as like telling somebody like, you know, like you're, you've got, you've got addiction or, you know, you're, you're an addict or not like that one. I couldn't tell you, but I like, I could tell you like what uh, my mentality when I was going through it. And it was the same thing. Like when, when we were doing heroin, like it, it was, 
I enjoyed doing it, but everything else around it was suffering. And as much as I loved hanging out and getting high, it was not what I wanted to do with my life, you know, and there's no, there's no, there's no advancement. There's no, there's no, there's no payoff. There's no sense of, of accomplishment. None of the things that, you know, like all the other things in life. So like I, and I could, and it was one of those, again, one of those moments of clarity. Like there was a point where I was so like, I wasn't, you know, wasn't on it and I wasn't, you know, recovering. And I kind of saw where this was going to go. And I went, if I keep doing this, something bad's going to happen. So I had to like physically remove myself situation and the same thing kind of happened at the beginning of the pandemic like you know ordering too much booze and and i'm not somebody who drinks alone so you know be like jump on zoom and have a drink or two with, with some people so like when when i wasn't when i was alone and i didn't feel like being in front of the computer that kind of went away on its own which was nice but the smoking weed thing was just like well it's everywhere out here you can get it any place so it was something that was always around and you know like kind of got me in trouble in my relationship once or twice because when i wasn't feeling good about myself it would be something that i would sneak off and do every once in a while you know not every day and not you know like with any sort of regularity but it was it was a it was a bad escape um, and it was probably one of the things that, you know, attributed to, you know, the relationship not going well. Um, but uh, but on top of all that, like when the pandemic started and then I was, I was just like, well, fuck it. You know, like I'm teaching from home. I've got nothing to do. There's no audition. There's nothing. You know, I don't feel like doing any of this. Watch all of my my improv and UCB and Groundlings friends all be like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to start doing shows online. And I watched them and they were all terrible terrible improv shows they're all it was just like six people talking over one another it was just miserable right so i was like well if there's nothing to look forward to here there are things i can do so like one thing was i started smoking a lot and then i i would wake up in the morning thinking i had covid every day i'd be like oh my god this is what it feels like uh it's like a stone i'm like no you had to like four bongs before bed like this is this yeah. is the problem and you don't have yes. covid you have you have you that's have funny though smoke. you got black lung Yes. Right. The, the paranoia plus the too much smoke equals, I think I have COVID. That's hysterical. Right. Every, every day. And then it would be like that conscious thing. It was just like, oh, you know, I probably shouldn't smoke. And then I can see if I actually don't have COVID. And then, of course, I'd smoke anyway. And then, like, so, like, that went on for, you know, too long. Um, but then, like, after my mom left, it was kind of like, oh, I can fall back into the old habits or I can – you know, again, like like you say, there's this wonderful, there's something that that's really wonderful that comes with sobriety, and there's this clarity to it. There is more energy. Like I'm taking better care of myself physically. You know, like eating better, working out every day. You know, like going to see more people. Um, and and writing. You know, like I've been doing a ton of writing lately. And even though I hate the process of writing, I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, but I I love the I love the finished product. It's incredible you know, so. how hard it is. Like I've been writing all oh. of a sudden and it's so hard. It's like, it's like, it's like, why can't I just take this out of my head and smear it into the paper somehow? And you can't, it's like, holy the, shit. And then people are like, use dictation software. And then it just sounds like retarded when I do that. Do you do it? Does it work for you? Yes. I, and, and honestly, like it's the closest you can get to that because I hate it too. Like, I mean, I just sat down and wrote, wrote a, um, a script with a friend of mine last night, you know, it took about two hours. We banged the thing out. It's only about six pages, but it's great. It's, it's a sort of a, a fake commercial for a friend's ice cream truck business, which is like exactly the type of thing that I 
like writing for. Um, and, you know, like we, we got that done, which was great. But when I'm writing my own stuff, especially this thing that you told me to start writing that I just came up with a title for that I'm still excited for, um, I've been using the dictation mode because it's just, it's just diarrhea of the mouth. And yeah, it sucks, Dave, it sucks. But the good thing is, is you can go back through it and see where you're getting off and cut those things out. And it's not as laborious as like sitting down there trying to type as fast as you think, which I cannot do. You use the Google Doc dictation or do you use something else? Nope, that's the one I use. And that you like it? I mean, do I, 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 it's good. Is it perfect? No, but you know, like it, 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 I can just sit there and ramble and pretend like you're in the room or friends in the room or anybody and just be like, well, how would I tell Dave this story? Right. And then I just go ahead and tell, you know, tell it and I can, you know, I'll hear myself giggling or laughing or whatever the hell it is, imagining what your response will be. And sometimes I'll throw it in there. Sometimes I won't. And then I can go back through it and take out all the ums and the repetitions right. and like put in the punctuation and, you know, finesse it up. So it's, it's not like doing it from scratch. Right. And, and I think that's smart. You know, people have been telling me to do that. I, I should try that now. Try it. Now, at, I don't remember when it was. You, you, you told me you were you were starting to date, and how uh, how uncomfortable it was and stupid it was. And forgive me, anybody who I offended by saying retarded. I know it offends people, so I'm sorry for offending anybody with that. Um, I just think it's a funny word. I, I, I don't think it's nice. It's not particularly kind. I just think it's kind of funny. Um, anyway, Jeremy was, Jeremy was never like Mr. Dating app guy. And then you got into it and you were like, Dave, I'm kind of uncomfortable with this. And I was like, document it. And, and so tell, tell, tell the audience about it. Tell the dopey name. So, you know, not to not to give too much of it away. I don't want to give the best parts away, but I will tell you, I came up with the title. I was, I was, I woke up. I think it was two days ago. I was having a terrible night's sleep because I this I'm gonna have like this giant knot in my back the size of a golf ball, and I was like, all right. And I woke up, uh, you know, about two two days ago, and the the title for the thing was perfect. And I was like, oh, I finally got the title for this thing, and uh, it's now called. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Dom's catfishing and cryptocurrencies, my miserable year of internet dating. Dude, nobody listens to this show. Tell us the worst, tell us the worst story. <laughs> Nobody's like, not giving it. Yeah, yeah, the worst um, one. All right. I'll give you, I'll give you a good, I'll give you a quick one. Cause the, the really good one is long and involved. And I, and I kind of, it's, it's about like meeting up with a woman and building up, <laughs> Well, all right, I'll give you the short version of the good story. So met someone online through a dating app and we were talking and she seemed very nice. Like I wasn't, and like the worst part is, is you know this is not gonna end well because it started off with the worst kind of lie. The kind of lie that's just there to make somebody feel better and you know is gonna bite you in the ass. So I matched with this woman and she's like, and we start talking and then in the middle of the conversation, she goes, you know, or, you know, like after a couple of, of days or a week or so, she goes, so what made you, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, swipe right on my profile and i went you know you seem really interesting uh you know I, I like that you're involved with the arts you know there's this that and the other all of these were lies i swiped on her by accident nice one of those ones yeah totally by accident um and you know didn't want to tell her that it was just it was so stupid of me not to i mean i should have just said it because at least you'd know and we were building up we were building up the the anticipation of meeting and everything else and i was staying very safe she was staying very safe and we decided to meet so uh -huh. she came over and i was like let me let me like i'll make i'll make you know brunch we'll do it in the middle of the day it'll be you know no no problems but you know we had been talking about some you know you didn't talk 
and like a little sex talk online, you uh -huh. know. And so she shows up, and it was it was the most violent sex I've ever had. And like it was just she was just like like my nose physically hurt afterwards from her mashing her face into mine. Um, that that was basically it. And after that, I was just like, oh god, this is all so uncomfortable. And uh, yeah, I won't give away the ending, but yeah, that was that was that was one of the good ones. So it ended. You didn't see her again. No, I did not see her again. Spoke to her for a little while, but no, we did not see each other again. Too violent? Um, yeah, and also, you know, like, I realized I just was not, I wasn't, I wasn't that attracted, to be honest with you, you know? Um, it just, you know, it not, not my type, really. She's very nice, don't get me wrong, and, like, speaking to her was wonderful. You know, but, like, you yeah, know, about it. you know she's, like, some ex-crackhead who listens to Dopey. <laughs> that would be the greatest thing. If if this woman is listening, please write me an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Jeremy, that's um, a that, I, that is a great story. It, I love that story. It's great. If that actually happens, I want because there's no way that's true, just from what I know about her. She's like super put together. I would be so, be severely I'd be seriously surprised. But yeah. Um, oh my if God. that happens, that'd be so funny. There's no chance, but that would be my favorite thing. Now, we've got two choices. You can pick. You can hear, yeah. you can hear, ah, I'm not going to give you the choice. Let's just no, play. The, like just now, a few weeks ago, I was uh, on a bunch of podcasts, right? A bunch of different podcasts. And there was this guy who said he had a podcast called the Dopeless Hope Fiend Podcast. And, <laughs> and I just assume everybody who does a podcast is exactly like me, um, you know, in, in, you know, either in New York or Los Angeles and, you know, whatever. It turns right. out this guy like was like a ZZ Top guy, like with a big beard. His partner had a big beard. They're in Oklahoma, and like they recorded outside. There was like a fire. It was like serious, <laughs> and they're called Dopeless Hope Fiends, and they're like they were cool. They're and, and it's these two guys and a chick, and like I was like send in a story. So he sent in this voicemail. But check him out. They're on YouTube, Dopeless Hope Fiend. And they look a little like, they're very, like, rurally, but, but very sweet. See, is that, is that bad to say rurally? No, I don't think that's a word, but I like the way you used it. We'll call them rustic? What's the word? Ru yeah, rustic. That's what you're looking for. Right. Rural-ish. Hey, Dave, it's Jeremy from Dopeless. Just wanted to thank you for coming on the show last week. We really appreciate it. It's probably my favorite interview yet. So... I figured I'd send you a story, um, one of my crazy adventures while using. So I was living in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, I was dealing weed, and I'd given someone $700 to go buy me a pound of some brickweed, and um, I get, I'd been dealing with him for a while. I gave him the money, and he went to go get it and never came back. And uh, so I drove, I knew where he was going to get it, so I drove by, and when I drove by, there was cops everywhere. The place had gotten raided, and I'm assuming while he was there. So I'd give him my rent money, and I was really good about doing that. I would <laughs> take my rent money, flip it, make more money, and then pay my rent. And uh, that particular time, it backfired on me. So I went home, and I was after seeing this all these cops around this house, and I kept thinking, I'm like, man, what am I going to do? I've I got to figure out a way to make money. So I rounded up a couple hundred dollars. Uh, and I decided that the next morning I was going to drive to Nogales, Mexico and pick up some pills and bring them back and sell them. And so 
that next morning I started drinking and I got in my car and I started driving to Mexico. And on the way there, I continued to drink the entire way. And I got and parked in the United States and walked across the border into Nogales, Mexico. And I walked around for a little while, had a few drinks, uh, went to a few different pharmacies trying to look for the best deal on uh, pills. And I ended up finding a place that would sell me Somas. I don't remember what the price was, but I remember that I ended up getting uh, like six bottles of Somas, muscle relaxers. And I wasn't very smart about it. I put the pills in my pockets and they were bulging. My pockets bulging out. I'm drunk at this point. And I'd only been in Mexico for maybe 30, 45 minutes. And I decided I was going to cross back across the border. So I got in line and I walked up to the, where they were doing all the checks and there was 20, probably 15, 20 people in front of me. And I proceeded to cross the border. Well, once I got up to the front, uh, the officer asked me, uh, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going back into the United States. I just came here to spend a little time and do a little shopping. And he's like, well, you're not bringing anything back. You don't have anything. Did you, did you buy anything? And I'm like, no. And then he reached over and grabbed my pocket, the outside of my pocket and kind of shook it and said, well, what's that then? And I'm like, oh no, at this point, I'm like, I'm in tr really bad trouble. And he tells me to empty out my pocket. So I empty out, I think six bottles of, of Soma's onto the counter. And he asked me, he said, uh, what are these? And I was really overweight at this point. So it was obvious that I wasn't using them as relief from muscle pain. But I told him uh, that I was had started working out and running and that I bought these pain pill, these muscle relaxers to help me to keep from getting muscle cramps. And he sat me down in the chair, took my ID and started running my information. And I sat there for... 15, 20 minutes probably. The whole time I'm panicking. I'm scared to death because I think, man, I'm about to get caught smuggling drugs in the United States. And he walks away and then he comes back and he sits down with me and he hands me my ID back and he says, all right, so have you ever been caught smuggling drugs in the United States before? And I said, no, uh, I haven't. And, and I'm like, dude, this isn't what I'm doing. I'm just, these are for personal use. I, I thought it was okay for me to bring them back. And he basically reaches up onto the table and slides all the pills back to me. And he says, today is your lucky day. And I just kind of looked at him in shock. And he said, now get these and get the fuck out of here. So I quickly put them back in my pocket and went to the car. And started to drive back to Phoenix from Nogales. Um, the entire way I'm drinking, um, by the time I get to Tucson, um, I'm really drunk. And I've been eating these pills the entire way. The last thing I remember is being in Tucson, Arizona. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up on my couch, passed out and there's pills laying all in the floor, scattered everywhere. And needless to say, I didn't really make much money on that trip because I ended up eating the majority of the pills, um, over the next few days. And the next few days were a complete blackout, but I was smuggling pills into the United States. And luckily the border patrol agent decided that it was my lucky day and decided to let me go. So uh, thank you for letting me tell that story and uh, hope you guys have a great day and thank you to the Dopey Nation. Bye. Well, that's amazing. I love that story. His name was Jeremy too. I know. And it reminds me of the Todd story when, when Todd was coming back uh, and had all, all fistfuls of pills in his pockets 
and he walks up to the counter and they're like, uh, yeah, ID. And he reaches in and pulls out his wallet and all the pills come out and fall on the floor. It's just like a cascade of pills. And he like managed to somehow pick up most of them without him, without the guy noticing. I don't even remember how he did it. Were you on that, that trip with him? Yep. I, I went down to, to Texas or to Mexico with Todd, you know, right when we were starting to smoke meth and, it was like one of my favorite times in my life. <laughs> I, I hadn't had I hadn't had like a benzo or an opiate in so long. I was so excited to see the promised land of this place where I could buy all the pills I wanted. Like I I was so excited. And we drove down to whatever that last city is in California. And Todd's mm-hmm. like, I'm gonna park here and then we'll just walk across the border. And I was like, great. And and me and Todd walk across the border. We go to some pharmacia. We bought... I must have been fucking high when we got there because I don't remember anything. I remember mm-hmm. we, we bought, you know, Percocets, Vicodins, Clonopins, Xanax, whatever. You know, like, I wanted to... I, I'm looking for the fucking uh, Dilaudid and the morphine, and I couldn't... You know, we didn't find anything like that. I think I ate a handful before we started leaving because that's just how I was. And then Todd's like, I think it was probably after the cascade of pills story that you had. So he's like, I have tape. And he taped it to his leg. And then we tried to cross the border and the sweat in his hairy legs got the tape. And he's like, he couldn't walk <laughs> because the plastic bag was hanging off of his leg. And he, but he was freaking out, you know. So um, that's great. Uh, Jeremy, thank you. Not you, Jeremy. The other Jeremy, thank you for sending in the voicemail. And everybody in Dopey Nation, check out Dopeless Hope Fiends on YouTube. Google it. And um, Jeremy, this was so much fun. This is great, man. I love doing this with you. And I'm uh, I'm coming back after my birthday. So if you want to do another one live, walking around the streets or whatever, or I'll come out there, you know, hang out for a bit. Um, you never, doing- You never come out here. You never oh, no. do. I'm doing it. Uh, th- this time I'm doing it. You'll come out. Oh, yeah. All right, great. See, I would love to. We will definitely do that. You want to take us out at the end of this thing? Uh, sure. Um, uh, well, stay strong. Dopey Nation. This is the worst, worst uh, sign-off I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Toodles. And what, what was the Todd thing? Todd. I, don't know. They, I think they say on the Dopey Zoom, they say peace and love for Todd at the end of Dopey oh. Zooms. Can you imagine there's this whole world of Dopey Zooms? They do 26 meetings a week. And at the end of many of these meetings, they say peace and love to Todd. Isn't, that, that. isn't that incredible? I just love that so much. And and just for all of you, um, uh, and for Todd, uh, let's, let's, I'm going to give you a little what's happening. I tried to show what's happening to, uh, to Nora. She was totally unimpressed. She was just yeah, like, I'm not, not surprised. Not, not for children. Linda loves. It is for children. Linda yeah. loves D. She never stops talking about D. You oh, know, D's r- the best. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, stay strong. Thank you, Jeremy. It was wonderful to have you on. Stay. Always st- my pleasure. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris and Todd and everybody else who's died from this affliction. And thank you. <laughs>